Happy Monday. And for those of you who celebrate, uh, happy Rosh Hashanah. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we are back. We spent the weekend in, we, by by that I mean uh, Tim Miller and Amanda Carpenter and I spent the weekend down in Austin, Texas at the Texas Tribune Festival. And we uh, taped, I, I described it as a live podcast. Obviously, all podcasts are taped, but it was an in-person podcast uh, with Tim on Friday, which you can check out online. And I wrote a little bit about some of the things that happened over the weekend, including what I thought was kind of an interesting moment with Liz Cheney on Saturday night and uh, and another podcast. I was actually cheating on this podcast, another podcast I appeared on called Talking Feds, where we speculated about what the Department of Justice might do with with Donald Trump. I was actually in the theater when uh, Evan Smith was interviewing uh, Liz Cheney. And asked her the question whether or not uh, she would actually vote for and campaign for Democrats. And and, and she said yes. And I have to admit, I I was a little bit surprised. And I was kind of wondering whether or not that was was the first time that she'd ever said that. And I think it was. So I I talk about that in our morning newsletter, Morning Shots, as well as something that I said about lawyers and democracy. So you can check that out on Morning Shots. So our guest today... On this Monday, Tim O'Brien, senior executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion, political analyst at MSNBC, a former editor and reporter for The New York Times, and this is always going to be on your resume, Tim, uh, author of Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald. And the reason why that's so memorable and just sort of evergreen is that that book was published way back in the before times in 2005, but Trump filed a $5 billion lawsuit against Tim. Trump was actually seeking $2.5 billion for compensatory damages, $2.5 billion for punitive damages. And of course, the suit was, uh, like so many of Donald Trump's suits, was dismissed in 2009. So, Tim, happy Monday. Good to be here, Charlie. We got a lot to talk about, I think, today. I think we ought to start with the most important and relevant story of the day. (laughs) The Green Bay Packers winning down in Tampa. That's so pathetic, Charlie. <laughs> you know, that? Charlie knows I'm a Chicago fan and I'm a Bears fan. And I, you know, I have a residual fondness for the Packers because it's the Midwest. But I also find your kind of loyalty to the Brewers and the Packers to be disturbing. Well, no, of course, there, there is loyalty. Although I, I have to say that that my my fandom for Aaron Rodgers is being tested. It's It has been stressed. And I have to say, I, I kind of wonder about what, what they must be serving in the locker room to Packer quarterbacks, because this Brett Favre story has just gotten so toxic. I mean, I, you know, well, it appears that they've been serving a big helping of fraud. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I mean, that's a it's that's an amazingly kind of craven fraud if all the facts bear out according to the lawsuits. Well, and interesting, he's being dropped from local radio stations. I see Sirius XM is suspending his show. And after all, I mean, the guy survived the whole dick pics thing, you know, and he probably figured, hey, I'm I'm Teflon. I can do any of this stuff. But this this is very bad. But I anyway, can channel yeah. money from the poor into my own speech payments. And then put it in text messages. And then put some of it into a biotech startup. It's uh, like crazy. It, yeah. it is crazy. Uh, the other big story, m- more seriously, are these elections in Italy where uh, the, the far right party appears to be poised to take power. I don't know that you could describe them as fascist, perhaps semi-fascist. Certainly the most far right government in Italy since, I don't know, Benito Mussolini. Uh, give me your, your sense of what's going on, because it does seem as if 
the European right is resurgent at the moment. And we have to kind of connect the dots between what's been happening in places like Hungary and and Poland and even Sweden. Sweden and Liz Truss's government in the UK. I would not call that a fascist government, but it's about as hard right as you can get. And I think, to me, the big philosophic lens in all of this is the ongoing dislocation of post-industrial economies across the globe and working people feeling unrepresented and disadvantaged. And that's playing out in unpredictable ways politically, because I think blue collar voters are leaving their traditional stewards in you know, the Democratic Party in the United States and, and their equivalents elsewhere because no solutions are being offered. And you know, my view of this is that conservatives have offered false solutions. They haven't really gotten at core programmatic economic uh, policies that, that lift all boats. And I think that that's, that's been decades in the making. And I think we see that channel through in the election of people like Donald Trump or Bolsonaro in Brazil or Viktor Orban in Hungary. I think more recently, one of the interesting things to me is you had this massive COVID relief spend. And the ducks are coming home to roost from that. And inflation is spiking and, and, and markets are becoming tremulous. And voters are electing politicians who essentially see government as part of the problem, if not the problem. So on the one hand, people want the government to enter into their lives in an emergency, support the bond market, support average working people with enhanced unemployment benefits. And then when the, you know, when the effects of that come home to roost, when the bills have to be paid, you get dislocation. And I think that it's very clear around issues like immigration and addressing the inflation scare and related matters that I think the right has been plucking more emotional heartstrings than the left has. And and I think that's one reason you're seeing this insurgence. The, the problem with it is the politics where they exist of some of those candidates are, are in conflict with the needs of the economies and the needs of workers. And the UK, I mean, the UK is a perfect example. Within days, I mean, within hours, frankly, on Friday, of Liz Truss laying out her tax and fiscal policies, UK markets went haywire and the, haywire and the pound crashed. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in Italy. You mentioned immigration, and immigration seems to be a through line. One of the things that the far-right party in uh, Italy was pushing was, a, you know, a, a real hard crackdown on illegal immigration. And, uh, you know, as I, was, as I was reading a lot of the commentary about what's happened in Italy and these other countries, I keep coming back to something that David Frum wrote in The Atlantic where, um, and, and I know he stepped on some toes, he said, look, um, if we don't control immigration, if we don't control illegal immigration, then the voters are going to turn to the fascists to do it. And this does seem to be one of those issues where the far right parties have grabbed onto this huge influx of refugees, immigrants into their country. They've weaponized it and that the mainstream parties have not come up with a sufficient response to it. Well, and, and, you know, you mentioned Sweden. That's I think the far right's surge in Sweden has been fueled by that. It was obviously an issue that Donald Trump rode into power on. And I think, I think there, are, there are useful and unuseful ways to think about that. We do have to get, I think, our borders under control. I do think the borders have to be monitored and policed. 
migrants who are refugees need to be properly supported, migrants who we would want to come into our economy because they add value to the job market should be able to come into our economies. And I think you can't just turn your back on that problem and let it fester because it does. And and um, I don't think Biden has fully addressed that in the United States. I don't think Trump did. I think Trump exacerbated it. I think I think the Biden administration is hoping it will go away, I guess, because they've I think they haven't taken concrete steps to really tackle this. There's a policy construct around immigration. There's also a, a false flag, I think, discussion on immigration, which is that your economic woes, voters, come from the fact that immigrants are coming into your right. country. Right. And I think that's I just don't think that's empirically true. But it is a very devastatingly effective campaign platform. But given how devastatingly effective, you know, demagoguing on immigration and refugees has been around the world, what do you make then of the calculation that Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis are making that their stunts shipping refugees off to so-called sanctuary cities uh, might be a political winner for them, even though the evidence would suggest they're using human beings as pawns and that they defrauded them, speaking of big dollops of fraud, um, that they misled these immigrants. But still, they probably feel, don't they, that uh, the wind is at their back, that this is something that is going to be politically potent for them. I, I mean, I think they must. DeSantis went as far as to ship migrants from Texas. They weren't even in his mm-hmm. state to ship them north. That's how craven Ron DeSantis is. But DeSantis has been very shrewd about what issues to land on, I think, in furtherance of what's going to be a presidential campaign. It's not clear to me yet how the total political fallout of that is going to play, Charlie. You may have a clearer sense of it than I do, but, you know, I think, for example, Charlie Baker, a Republican governor in Massachusetts, brought the state apparatus to bear uh, to support the migrants whose DeSantis shipped to Martha's Vineyard. And I do think it was a, a demonstration of the power of positive policy when it doesn't break your budget and when it doesn't break the well-being of of your local residents, which I think it was in that case. If this escalates, I think it could wind up having the kind of fault lines that Eastern European countries had around Syrian refugees. Yes, right. You know, there were gestures of welcoming refugees. And then when it became a tidal wave, there was backlash. You know, there's no indication yet that it's going to become a tidal wave yet with the the numbers Mm -hmm. being shipped north. And there is evidence that voters are disgusted by what DeSantis is doing, but they're probably not his voters anyway. So one last comment on the election in Italy and watching the reaction here domestically. You know, you and I are both old enough to remember when American conservatism was very easily distinguished from European national front type right wing politics. Very, very different, uh, very different values, very different vibes, very different use of language that American conservatism was about American exceptionalism, but it was also about limited government. It was more libertarian or at least in the rhetoric, libertarian oriented, whereas national front conservatism was more blood and steel. And watching the enthusiastic support for the far-right victories in Italy among American conservatives, it underlines this evolution or devolution of the right in the in this country that really, you know, there is kind of a coming together 
of American right-wing politics and this European nativist hyper-nationalist politics. And you're seeing like the president of the Heritage Foundation and others saying how wonderful it is. You know, it's us versus them. And it's the same, essentially saying it's the same sort of us versus them politics in the United States as it is in Italy. And some would go even further and say as, as in Hungary. I don't think you can discount the extent to which social media has also given global communities of all forms, left or right or interest groups around non-political issues. You know, social media is a great enabler of conversations. It's also a great enabler of fanaticism. And it's apparent, I think, you know, to anyone anywhere now on the far right, what works in terms of cultivating power and building off of that. And it's, it's an expressly emotional uh, and propagandic tilt. It isn't about policy. As you pointed out, it's not about cutting taxes and a more conservative Supreme Court and hawkish foreign policy. It's about the idea that, that the other, however you want to define the other, by race or gender or whatever it might be, is out to get you. And that, and that any form of sort of public involvement in our lives hmm. is, is, is bent. And, and, you know, if, if you were a real, I think, craven policymaker, so I would equate that <laughs> with Mitch McConnell, then you sort of say, all of that's okay. Even if I've been a traditionally someone who supports a certain kind of policy platform, maybe we need shock therapy to get government out of our lives, and this is the price we pay, or this is how it looks. So you raise an interesting possibility that because of social media, that right-wing politics has been globalized, that they are all globalists now in terms of ideology. Absolutely. All right. So the reason I wanted to talk to you today is because you are uh, demonstrably one of the world's leading experts on Donald Trump's decades-long grift in New York. So let's talk about the Letitia James lawsuit and, and, and where that's going. I mean, this is the lawsuit that accuses the Trump organization, Trump and his kids of financial fraud, arguing they had misled investors, falsely inflated the values of their assets. I think people now know what that's about. You wrote Trump, a wildly insecure man has spent most of his 76 years inflating his wealth, achievements and abilities. But Letitia James civil lawsuit, more than 280 pages long, is the first time his carnivalesque business practices have exposed him to existential legal consequences. So let's talk about how big a threat this lawsuit does pose and what you mean by existential legal consequences. Well, I don't I don't think her suit, it's a civil suit. So yeah. so Trump and his children aren't going to wind up in jail because of this. But she has made two federal criminal referrals out of it to the IRS and to the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York. So, you know, those will have to play out. But, you know, Donald Trump is a creature of the New York real estate market. His father built a, a large fortune in the New York real estate market. And Donald... Um, inherited that and and built his own his own persona and business dealings out of it if not for that Donald Trump wouldn't be in our lives and there's a possibility now that Letitia James is going to shut down the Trump family operation in its entirety in New York and that will be the end of that most of his wealth is tied up in a handful of skyscrapers i think about 5 of them four of which are in New York City um, she's seeking to revoke his business license for doing business in New York. If that happens, he's going to have to sell those buildings. 
And no one in the real estate market is going to think of this as anything other, I think, than a fire sale. So it's unlikely that he's going to get top dollar for those buildings. They're heavily mortgaged, as all of his stuff is. He always has lots of debt. He's always been cash poor and property rich. So she could put him out of business in New York. His finances could get hobbled. And then the family legacy gets blown up. And those are all very real things. However much Donald Trump says he doesn't care about that stuff, he cares about it deeply. And I think the I think the other thing to bear in mind, however, is that she's got a tough case to make because she's going to have to prove that these poor bankers were so unsophisticated they didn't know Donald Trump was trying to BS them. And that's a hard standard to overcome. I think it would be easier to say that about the tax authorities than it would about Wall Street bankers. Having said that, though, whether or not they knew they were being duped isn't the only evidentiary hurdle she needs to, you know, set down here. If the mere fact that Trump and his his eldest three eldest children contemplated trying to do that might be enough, but she's going to have to convince a jury of that. So this is one of the most interesting questions that you've raised, I think, because uh, it is no secret that he has been lying about his wealth. He's been inflating his valuation for years. His lawsuit with you um, was exactly on the point where he had been claiming to be worth as much as $6 billion and you were one of the first reporters who pointed out, no, not even close to all of that. And the evidence would suggest that you were right about this. But this has been going on for decades. So my first reaction was listening to Letitia James saying, you know, no one is above the law, et, 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 et cetera. And yet for decades, hasn't Donald Trump been living proof that he, that some people are above the law? Why was he able to get away with this sort of thing? for years and years, decades, lying about the taxes, engaging in these things. Just give me your, your, your sense of that. Is there a double standard or is this just the way business is done in New York? Well, I mean, most white collar criminals in the United States never face the kind of consequences blue collar criminals face. You know, a, a kid stealing candy out of a 7-Eleven sometimes has a higher possibility of getting incarcerated than a white-collar criminal who steals millions because white-collar criminals can afford better lawyers. So that's that's been baked into things for a long time. In Trump's case, Charlie, you know, he's always had these sort of rings of fire around him that have protected him from the consequences of his own behavior. The first, obviously, was his family's wealth. His father just bailed him out of his academic snafus and his screw-ups in business because his father had the money to do that. And then Trump became a celebrity, and he had this insulation that comes with celebrity. He got away with behavior people might have otherwise scorned or dumped him for. And then, of course, he, he gets into the White House, and he gets all of the, the armor that comes with being president of the United States. And, and because of that, I think he's never had to deal again with the consequences of his own behavior. So essentially, Donald Trump is a seven-year-old grown old. And I think in the past... Because he was just another real estate developer, a, a famous one, but just another one, people didn't see him as a threat to the well-being of American democracy yeah. and the Constitution, but they did as president. Yeah, and I think that forced people to focus on him in a new way. 
So his relationship with with the prosecutors, he gave an interview with, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, one of the interviews he gave to uh, Maggie Haberman when she was writing her book, where he's bragging about the close relationship that he used to have with the former Manhattan DA, Morgenthau, that he was his friend, that he never would have done anything like this. Well, but, but remember that Donald Trump gave massive contributions to the police athletic league, or say, let's say large contributions to the police athletic league, which was one of Bob Morgenthau's, you know, core charities. And there had always been a question in, in Manhattan as to whether or not Bob Morgenthau, who was a great public servant and a very vigilant observer of financial fraud, went lightly on the real estate community because the real estate community helped get him elected. So as always with Trump, when he sort of says these people left me alone, he's also exposing himself because the reason they left him alone is possibly because they were co-opted. And, you know, the reason he got through two impeachments was because he had co-opted the GOP. Mm. And what's happening now is there's a number of legal actions around him where he doesn't have leverage, whether it's in the state of Georgia or the feds looking at the, at the documents at Mar-a-Lago, Manhattan DA, New York. AG, and possibly ultimately Merrick Garland, though that's yet to be seen. But in all of those cases, he's got no leverage over them. So it's, it's, it's just so pathetic when he says, yeah, these other prosecutors didn't care. And well, there's bad reasons for why they didn't care. So stick with the DA's office, because I mean, Robert Morgenthau is kind of a legendary figure. I mean, you know, former U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, you know, served like forever, 1975 until 2009 as New York DA. He's succeeded by Cyrus Vance, famous name, uh, who began the grand jury investigation into Trump and then was succeeded although by- Charlie, yes. Although Charlie, even Cy Vance let the Trumps go on something that was nah, a pretty, nah. pretty tough case where they were selling condominiums mm-hmm. in one of the office towers and misrepresenting the sale price of previous condos and how briskly they had been sold. And there was a question as to whether or not they had defrauded prospective condo buyers by misrepresenting how well the building was selling. And there was an investigation. It was Ivanka, I think Don Jr. and Donald. And Cy Vance got heavily criticized for letting that one go in the years before Trump mm. became president. Yeah. So there's there's a long pattern, there, you know, and obviously uh, perhaps reasons for the Trumps to think that they were Teflon. So in the end, near the end of his career, Cy Vance sort of got religion and seemed to be moving moving ahead. He retires. He's replaced by Alvin Bragg, about whom I know virtually nothing. And yet Alvin Bragg has had a big question mark over his head because it certainly looked like he was going to take a dive on on this case as well. So what's what is what is I mean, yet yet prosecutors resigning from the office. So what is going on there? Well, look, the Bragg has got a criminal prosecution afoot. It's a much tougher case to make than the civil prosecution that Tish James is overseeing. In a criminal prosecution, you have to prove intent. So you have to prove that the person you're prosecuting knew that they were breaking the law, knew they were doing something wrong, and did it anyway. And so that's a very high standard. You need an evidentiary trail that's robust, and it has to be as airtight as possible so a jury believes you. There was a sharp divide inside Bragg's office that he inherited, by the way, from Mm -hmm. Cy Vance. Mm -hmm. Cy Vance might have tried to resolve this himself before leaving office rather than leaving this big, bad sandwich on Alvin Bragg's desk, but he did it that way. But there was a, a split in that office, I think, among some prosecutors who felt the evidence hadn't risen high enough, but it was airtight enough to go after a former president 
on, a, on criminal charges. Others in the office thought there is enough there to, to indict and, and we could use the indictment and the process itself to get further information to nail things down. And, you know, there's reasonable prosecutorial arguments to yeah. make on both sides of that, but the office itself wasn't unified. Bragg inherited that. Okay, so I have one one last question on on the, these cases. Uh, so there there was an ongoing case against the Trump Organization. Um, the guy that knows everything, Alan, was it Weisselberg? Yeah, you know, has pled guilty, and he's going to get sentenced pending how much he cooperates with Alvin Bragg's office. This is Alvin Bragg's office that prosecuted Weisselberg. Okay, so my question about this was it's, it's a plea deal, and the first reports that I saw about this was that he was pleading guilty as part of the plea deal, but that the deal did not require him to testify against Donald Trump. What kind of a deal was that? I, I actually think that misrepresents it a little okay. because because uh, he has to, the judge said he would withhold the sentencing until he had made a determination about how effectively Weisselberg cooperated. So of course they're going to ask him questions about Trump. Nothing happened that, well, I am Weisselberg was Fred Trump's accountant. And then he became Donald Trump's chief financial officer. He knows where every financial body everything, is. Everything, yeah. And it's in his interest to get a lighter sentence to cooperate as robustly as possible. He's looking at a difference of, say, one to three years and five to 15. And so, of course, I think he's going to cooperate. And inevitably, that's going to involve offering testimony or evidence about things Donald Trump did at the Trump Organization. So... Um, I think that was I think there was some spin there on Weisselberg's lawyers. Uh, I think the fact pattern suggests that he is going to most likely offer evidence against Donald Trump. Okay, let's switch gears because you've uh, you've written also uh, extensively about uh, the documents down in Mar-a-Lago, what's going on down there. So, okay, so Tim, why did Donald Trump take all that stuff in the first place. What do you think? Because he could, Charlie. <laughs> and, and secondly, you know, usually the easiest answer on that is a dollar sign. I think he saw Steve Mnuchin getting, you know, two billion from the Saudis, and his son-in-law Jared Kushner getting two billion from the Saudis. And this is just projection on my part. I, I, I this is complete supposition. But I think I think he undoubtedly thought he could possibly monetize some of the things he took out of the office, out of the White House. How? I think How? By selling them on the really? open market. Sure, of course. He'd sell anything. He would sell absolutely, he, and he has. He sold underwear, mattresses, water, steaks, ties, <laughs> clothing, and all sorts of other garbage. Games, pizzas, name it. So why wouldn't he sell nuclear secrets? I mean, this is not a sophisticated man. He is, he's a carnival barker who loves cash. So I think that that's a reasonable thing is to think that he thought about selling things on the open market. I think another possibility is that he wanted to cover up the trail reputationally. Is there, was there anything in there about his communications with Zelensky in Ukraine, the, the stuff that he got impeached for? Possibly. I don't know. But, but containing reputational damage is also, I think, a reasonable thing to wonder about. And then lastly, and it's the least damaging thing is he just likes toys because he's a little kid. And he likes you know, the cool doodads. 
Yeah, he likes the doodads, <laughs> the models of Air Force One, you know, and framed pictures of him meeting with world leaders and all this other crud. Letters with Kim Jong-un. Like, he thinks it's neat. So that's a factor in all of this for sure, but I don't think it's hardly the most nefarious one. No, I when you wrote about his possible motivations, um, in, including the fact it was for money, you, you wrote, I really love this paragraph, um, unfettered greed has motivated Trump his entire life. He didn't get into the casino business to beautify Atlantic City. He didn't propose a mega development on Manhattan's west side because it would have made New York more livable. He didn't start Trump University to educate students, and he didn't host The Apprentice to tutor entrepreneurs. He didn't originally run for president to revitalize democracy. Money, money, money. This is kind of the the core understanding of what motivates Donald Trump beside just his his endless insecure ego, right? I mean, it's these are the through lines. And I think it's why some of his supporters love him because he just says, yeah, I like women and I like money and screw you and this is how I live, yeehaw. And, and there's a lot of people who respond to that, you know, but the, and, and there's, a, there's part of that where you can sort of, I guess, revel in his enthusiasm for it, but the downside is he's corrupt and craven and damaging. So is he running? Is there, is there any doubt in your mind that he's running? No, I think he's going to run. I don't think he wants to. Really? I think there was a period of time where he didn't want to, but now I think reality is, is convincing him that it's in his best interest to run because it keeps him in the spotlight. It keeps him, you know, on top of the Republican pyramid and he can monetize it. Is there anything that would convince him not to run? And obviously, I'm thinking of these legal uh, threats against oh, yeah, him. If, other, if, than jail, other than jail? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, well, well, wait, wait, wait. No, I mean, including jail. Is there anything including indictment and or jail that would convince him not to run? I don't think so. You know, I, I you know, we might have been on some of those same shows together in mm-hmm. November of 2020, you know, where I think people had this sort of wish that after Election Day, he might disappear. I do remember that. And I was saying, I think between Election Day and January 6th, he's going to try to burn the house down. I don't think he's going away and because that's not in his nature. I mean, I didn't know that he was fomenting a coup, you know, like I didn't think it would be that purposeful. I just thought he would try to disrupt everything. And I think that's still where he's at now. He's Donald Trump is not someone who's going to go gently into that good night. Well, you know, you were obviously right if you said he's not going to go away. That, that and, and I think it was easy to predict, knowing Donald Trump, that he was never going to concede defeat because Donald Trump can never lose. He can only be cheated. He can only be betrayed, right? On the other hand, you used an interesting phrase, that he would try to burn the house down. And in retrospect, it does appear that he was prepared to pull the entire edifice down around him if he did not win and yet he has politically survived that so far. You could argue that possibly it's enhanced his standing. And, and it's, it's kind of astounding to me when you look at the array of people in the GOP who condemned it around January 6th, from Kevin McCarthy to, to Mitch McConnell, who then basically got with the program. And the ones who came down the hardest on him within the GOP, people like Liz Cheney, or Adam Kinzinger are exiled. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is that he knows how to turn disadvantage into a message that ultimately it is advantageous for him. So first of all, do you think the Department of Justice will indict him before the 2024 election? You know, I don't know how they don't indict him. 
on the fact pattern alone. I don't think their issues are legal. I think their issues are political. They're going to worry about the fallout of indicting an ex-president in a way that looks partisan. But I think Trump broke the law, and I, and I think Trump fomented a coup. And I think he has to be held accountable if our institutions and laws mean anything. But, but I don't know if Merrick Garland will have that same you know, perspective. Yeah, I, I I suspect that he might, and I, I agree with you. I think that the precedent uh, that would be set by not indicting him would 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 hang over us for for decades. So if he is indicted, would the Republican Party still uh, nominate him? Would the Republican Party nominate a person facing federal criminal charges to be president of the United States? Would they do that in twenty twenty four? Wow, you probably know the answer to that better than I do, Charlie. But wouldn't it be amazing? I mean, it would. Yes. <clears throat> It, but it would not be, I guess, out of kilter with where things have been headed with institutional conservatives globally in the last few years. No, see, I, I think the answer to that is yes, which, again, yeah. is is astounding. It is astounding. But these are the times we live in. I wrote something this morning that I, I didn't find pleasant, which was that, you know, democracy is too important to be left to the lawyers. But here we are. I mean, they're sort of left. Because, that line. Well, because all of the other, you know, guardrails, bulwarks of democracy that we've counted on, you know, are have been unreliable. You know, I included the media, not because the media hasn't done a good job, but because, well, there's a lot of different kinds of media. But also Donald Trump has succeeded probably beyond his wildest dreams in insulating himself against any negative reporting, any investigative reporting. I mean, there is. No Finding ways to go beyond around the media, you know, well, through exactly. social media and his own his own persona. Yeah. I mean, all of the Republicans who had served in the administration who've spoken out about how unfit for office he is. I mean, I don't know, who, you know, who else we're waiting for. That hasn't had an effect. Congress has clearly decided that it's going to abdicate its responsibility. I threw in the electorate because obviously a good chunk of the electorate likes this sort of thing or doesn't care about this sort of thing. And it's certainly possible in 2024 that Donald Trump could lose by 10 million votes and still be back in the Oval Office. So what are we left with? The churches, you know, give me a break on all of that. The Republican donors obviously are completely okay with this so far to the extent to which they care about it. In fact, the role of the donors appears to become more toxic with time. So really, even though the system was not designed to you know, rely on prosecutors with their you know, limited you know, tools, that's kind of where we're at right now, right? Which you know, means it's the end of the American experiment. You think so? Yes. I, I worry about violence, Charlie. I, I, I really worry about these elections being contested so deeply and viciously in people unfit for office getting elected, quote unquote, that we end up with violence and we end up with a kind of historical endpoint for what we've all tried to build here over the last 200 plus years. I worry about that too, but I also worry that maybe we've already crossed the tipping point and we'll recognize it in retrospect, but yeah. that it, we've already passed it. That there's a point of no return. And I know that we're never supposed to engage in both sidesism. But it's hard to imagine an enduring situation where one side says, no, we're, we're going to play by Marquis of Queensbury rules if you flout them all. At what point does it become kind of this 
chaotic free-for-all in which neither side is going to accept the results of the election. And 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 again, I'm not saying that there's any symmetry here. Clearly, it is Republicans who've decided they're not going to accept the outcome. But if if this election turns out the way that it could, it really does make you wonder whether or not our, our experiment has been a failure. I agree 100 percent. I think I think we are headed potentially if people don't stand up and do the right thing across a lot of U.S. institutions. And I think primarily law enforcement and the GOP right now, I think we're headed for a, a, a chaos we haven't experienced here for a long time. Yeah, it may not be the form of a civil war, but I think there's a failure of imagination to think that that we couldn't have this breakdown. I mean, you're starting to see the, you know, the red versus blue uh, divide. So, uh, again, I I try to stay out of the business of of predicting, and I'm very, very skeptical of all the polls at this point. What is your sense about the midterms right now? There was some exuberance among Democrats that they were making a comeback. And then we had some polls over the weekend that would suggest, uh, no, (laughs) the winds are still very much at the Republicans' back. The abortion issue continues to be this incredible wild card. And of course, the economy, the stock market, I haven't even looked today. Uh, What is your sense of where we're at right now? I think the bump that the Democrats got after the Dobbs ruling is real. I don't know, though, that that has enough momentum to overcome bread and butter issues like jobs and inflation and the economy, which I think usually motivates voters more powerfully than anything else. That might be an exception in this midterm. I don't think we'll know till the vote is in. But, you know, I think Democrats' chances of holding on to the House, you know, really rose and fell on inflation and jobs and the economy. And we're, we're in another Certainly right now, this week is going to be a very telling week because you have a global problems in the currency markets, the stock market, bond market. And I think how that plays out will be a really big factor. I, I don't think I mean, ironically, you know, the Dems may have a stronger hand to play in the Senate than they would have thought of a year ago. But I, it's not clear to me that they're going to hold on to the House. I, I think GOP is going to is going to take over the house. Yeah, I think that's a that's a reasonable projection and then of course we'll see what happens in the Senate because of course as even Mitch McConnell has acknowledged they have a candidate quality issue. However, even the craziest candidates appear to be competitive, which which ought to be a kind of a red flag if there's a remote possibility that Herschel Walker may someday be sworn in as a United States senator. It tells you where we are as a country, doesn't it, Tim? And and get a seat on like the Senate Foreign Relations Committee or something, you know, when when he can barely identify some of the key issues facing the country overseas. It's amazing. Tim O'Brien, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I always appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Charlie. Tim is senior executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion, a political analyst at MSNBC, and his book, which is still a relevant classic, Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.